episode 108 of the Massive Attack Podcast. I'm Joe, and sensibly social distancing all the way over in Melbourne via Skype is Mitch. Good So what have you been up to, Mitch? Nothing. I know. ISO, my friend. ISO. Very much, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well I mean, I'm, I'm you know, we're, we're both essential. So we, we both are. get to go to work to a point. So it's um, it's not too bad still. I'm starting to get used to it. Like the yeah. last weekend, I was very chilled with the whole thing. It's like nothing's going to happen. doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like, well, yeah, my kids, every time one of them gets a sniffle, they'll turn around to the other and go, don't come near me, you've got corona. But, you know, there, there is no way they would have corona because they haven't been around other people that have corona or anything like that, but you never know. They, but, yeah. they don't understand. They don't. It's weird because, yeah, we're getting to that point now being the fact that I'm in Tasmania. It is getting quite cold, which I don't actually mind because – I quite like the cold weather, but on my late night at work, I finish about half past five and I come out of the office and it's already starting to get dark and there's that sort of mist in the air and people have got their log fires going and it's like, it just feels like the country, but yeah. And mm. in that little 10 minute drive that it takes me to get home, it goes from being slightly dusky to almost pitch black when I come in the door. So yeah, when we get into proper winter, it's going to be dark when I leave home and dark when I come home. Oh, well. Yes. It's funny, though, because I, I had to actually pop into the heart of Launceston today to pick up something. And in the middle of Launceston, there's like a little mall. It's like the poor cousin of the Burke Street Mall in Melbourne. But I went there at nine o'clock this morning and it was just absolutely dead. There's still probably two thirds of the shops that aren't actually open. So they're all like, you know, closed up. And even some of the shops that are open at the moment hadn't opened yet because it was still that little bit too early. But there was just no one around. It was like being in a zombie apocalypse or something. Okay. Obviously, minus the zombies. But yeah. But yeah, so uh, being the fact that myself and my wife are both essential workers, we have decided that we're going to send our kids back to school because we're horrible parents. So I had to actually go and buy some long pants for my kids because it's a bit too cold to go to school in shorts. So, yeah. But other than that, yeah, I haven't been doing a lot. We actually got Uber Eats from our local pub the other day, so that was pretty cool. That was a highlight of the weekend. That's something. Well, I guess it's something. Yeah, because you didn't have a pizza shop. No, although someone tells me there is a really good pizza shop about two suburbs over. So I might have to check that out, and I'll give you a report by the by the time I come back for the next episode. But please yeah. do. But yeah, just plodding along, doing all the usual stuff. Yeah, I think gaming. Um, I haven't really been doing a lot of Xbox gaming. I did download one of the freebie titles for May, which was V Rally Four, but it's more of a simulator than an arcade racer. So I kept crashing. Well, okay. yeah. It's a bit too realistic, and when you corner, you really have to break into the corners and like accelerate at the right time. Otherwise, you just crash your rally car. And my kids were having a good old laugh watching me drive my Ford Escort off the side of the road every time I tried to corner. Okay. But other than that, I I haven't done a lot of modern gaming, but I've been actually going back and doing old stuff. So um, there was a game that came out as one of the freebies last year, I think, and I got it on the Xbox 360, which was Dirt Showdown. And I had played a little bit of it. And one of the things... It's a rally game, isn't it? Well, it's it's an off-road racing game, but it's also got other stuff in it as well. And one of the other things that's in it is 
demolition derbies and we've been watching a tv show but i'll get more onto that when we get into the tv section but it just made me think about demolition derbies again and i sort of mentioned it to the kids and they're like what's a demolition derby sort of thing because you know they're too young to understand anything in the real world Hmm. and we dug it up and i was like well demolition derbies where you drive around and try and wreck the other cars and actually it took me a little while to work out which game it was that had it in so originally i thought it was in one of the flat out games that i've got but the version that was in the flat out wasn't what I was remembering. And then I realized, yeah, it's in this dirt showdown. So we were playing that. And then my kids decided that they want to have a go of it. So now we have a round robin sort of tournament where we pass the controller to each other and we each have a version of the race and see who could score the highest points in the demolition derby. And my little one's actually really good at it. So yeah, so that's my Xbox gaming. The only other thing I've been doing is being the fact that I'm at home and there's not a lot to do and I'm getting bored watching TV. I decided that I was going to install my emulators back on the PC again. So I've been playing a, a bit of Virtual Pro Wrestling 2 on the PC, the old Nintendo game. Okay. And as, as usual, I had to go through and like rename all the characters and do a bunch of edits. So I guess I've been doing more editing on that rather than actual playing yeah, of the game. That's the bit you like the most, it appears. Yeah, exactly. Although the gameplay in that is really good. That's one of the um, Akai Corporation games that was like the forerunner of the WWE games back in the day, or I think WWF back then. So it it actually feels nice. It's got a good grapple system. It just flows really nicely. But yeah, being the fact that it is a Japanese game, I had to go and find my translations again and rename all my characters with the proper English names. But one more thing I have been doing on the PC, and that's a real blast from the past, because my kids were watching a TV show called Gizzy and the Lemmings. I don't know if your kids have ever got into that. Never but it's it's a little French Canadian cartoon about a grizzly bear that lives in a like a log cabin in the mountains and is constantly pestered by a tribe of lemmings. And my kids had no idea that lemmings were actual real animals. And I was like, well, yes, they are animals, but also it's an awesome PC game from back in the day. So I found some website that's got like a, a Flash version of it, and you can play the original levels of lemmings via this little Flash app. And my youngest just got so into it. Like initially I put it on and I was like, oh, have a look at this. You might like it. If you don't, don't worry about it. And he probably sat there for about half an hour, just burning through levels until he got to one that he couldn't do. And then he was like, oh, you know, come and help me, Dad. I can't work out how to save my lemmings sort of thing. And he was like hooked. And then after that, I was sort of like, all right, we'll take it in turns. You play a level. And if you die, I'll try and do it. And then if I die, you have another go sort of thing. And I just remember how much fun computer games used to be back in the day when you didn't have to rely on like fancy graphics or elaborate storylines with massive cutscenes. All you needed to do was have you know, little pixelated lemmings and you just used your imagination and clicked on them and they did things. So yeah, the good old days. But yeah, that's that's my gaming. So what about you? Have you been playing anything? Uh, the only gaming I've really done is we've been watching Lego Masters. So my son's really getting into Lego at the moment. And one of the free games with the Game Pass was the Lego Ninjago movie game. Oh, okay. So yep. we played. And because the kids have been home all this time in isolation, we, you know, my wife is getting a bit frazzled, the kids are getting a bit frazzled. It's like, how about we let them have a day on the weekend to do their own, what they want to do. If they want to watch TV, they want to do this, let them, and he wanted to play games. So, okay. So what game would you like to play? And he goes, oh, what game have I, haven't I played? What do you think I'd like? And I said, well, there's a, the Ninjago game there. And he goes, oh, yeah. Let's play that. And so we had a good probably four or five-hour session of that. Oh, awesome. And we're probably three-quarters of the way through because it's following the storyline of the movie. Apparently, I haven't seen the movie, but I kind of want to after playing the game. It looked like fun because it had a lot of cutscenes in there. 
It was quite okay. funny. Yeah, so he got the hang of that pretty quick and was enjoying it. So that was good. Follows the normal Lego routine of doing a level and then unlocking it so you can do it again and get all the extras and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there are extras, but it's probably more linear. But there are things you can look at going, oh, I need a different guy to get up there and do something. Because mm-hmm. you sort of unlock characters and unlock powers. Yeah, usual so, formula. Yeah, but I, Jackson doesn't understand that yet, so it'll be more uh, we've finished the game because it is one of the Game Pass games and it's going soon apparently on the Game Pass. You know, they mm. warn you that it will be dropped off the free game list. Yeah. So I think yeah, we crack it we out did this that. weekend and get rid of it before it goes. Yeah, we did that with Lego City Stories and we played probably the first couple of levels and then didn't play it for a month or two. And then when we went back to it, it was like, you don't own this game. And I was like, damn, it's dropped off the Game Pass. Mm. Yeah, so in that, that was really fun, but I've actually got on the shelf. I said, you know, Jax, when we finish this, I've got Lego Avengers and Lego Batman 3 up on the shelf. Awesome. Now that he's sort of capable of playing those games, we can play together, which is great. So that's that's about it as far as gaming goes. Okay. Anything exciting on the small screen to talk about? Oh, I am just so into Chernobyl. I know I'm like six months behind the rest of the world, but wow. Yeah. Wow. I wanted to watch it back when we had Foxtel and I didn't get around to it. So I don't know how I'm going to do it now, probably illegally, but it is on my list of things I eventually want to get to. Is it as bleak as everyone said it was? Yeah, but not, oh my God, I'm going to slip my wrist to this. It's just fascinating. And there's an awesome companion podcast, an official one where I forget who's doing the interviewing, but it's just a conversation between the writer of the show and someone else who's another writer himself. And there's one episode per episode so you listen to it after you've watched the episode and he's talking about this what was true what was made up what and the bits they didn't add in that you couldn't believe and what they didn't for time they had couldn't put this in and all this sort of stuff and the episode there's only five episodes total just watched the fourth one and i mean there's a scene in that which was pretty harrowing and if you don't like animals being injured and stuff then yeah it's a trigger warning on that one it's just amazing like i i was what when to have an 86 i was 13 so i knew what happened but not the severity of it and that, well, that was I, part of the Russian side of things too, as far as they didn't let a lot of information out. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think the fact that the Western world didn't know it was as bad as it was is purely for the fact that the Russians didn't want to look bad to the rest of the world. No. So they, they didn't tell us the extent of it. No, that was, yeah, I mean, that's it's all about lies. And that's what the show opens, opening line is all about lies. So, yeah, it, it's it's amazing. The acting's great. The filming's done. It's it's not bombastic. Yeah, but when it explodes, you don't see the explosion or anything like that. It's you, the first time you see it, it's in the background of someone's window. They walk past a window and there's a fire. Okay. And, you know, and you do get a bang because the shockwave comes through eventually, but it's just really well filmed, really well acted. I can't get enough of it. I started watching it, then my wife goes, oh, and I was raving about it to her, and she says, all right, I'll catch up. So I had to stop and end up watching the first three episodes <laughs> again so she could okay. catch up, and I had no problem watching it again. And that was only within the week. Yep. So we're now up to episode four, and we've got one to go, and it's like, oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's just fascinating, and just all this stuff about it. So I did not know any of this and just how bad it could have been and just how Russian it was. Yeah. Like the solution to it all was very Russian. Little things here and there, like they evacuated the town at one point, which is like two k's from the plant mm. where a lot of the workers and that lived. It was this, what they call atom towns. And they evacuated 50,000 people in a day and only one wow. person said no, apparently. 
Okay. I mean, I, they did say they were going to be back in a couple of days, but yep. those people left and never came back. Okay. So, yeah, could you imagine that in America or somewhere else saying, you got to go? It's like, I, I refuse. Well, the same thing happened when Hurricane Katrina came through and, yeah, the government went, everyone's got to get out. You can't live here anymore. And, yeah, there was a huge population of people in Louisiana and Florida and stuff that were like, no, I'm not leaving. This is my home. It, it, I can't recommend it enough. I'm, okay. well, I'm blown away by it. it. It's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, it's really good. I can remember late last year you talked about a documentary you watched about how they were building concrete bunkers to go over the top of it, yeah. And I'm even more amazed by it now, like, watching this, because they talked about this. There's a bit where there's all this radioactive material on the roof of the thing, and until they can start cleaning it out, they need to get it off the roof into sort of the hole of where the the reactor is, essentially. But the, the stuff on top of there is so radioactive, it's ridiculous. And men had to go up there and physically use a shovel and push it off. And they were conscripted, went in there and did it for 90 seconds. They were on the roof for 90 seconds doing move what they could, then run out, and that was it. That was their conscription. Yep. They worked out that the 90 seconds was a life's worth of dosage they could be exposed to. Wow. And it's just like, fucking what? <laughs> it's just stuff like that. And there's a there's a scene that's really well filmed where you pretty much you do that 90 seconds with a character. They're up oh, there awesome. and they do it. And it's just like, wow. Just such yep. a um, Russian solution to a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just worked. It's just, yeah, it's just amazing, absolutely yeah. amazing. And, yeah, the companion podcast makes it even better. Yeah. And you just sort of hear some of the stories of some characters going, well, that person is dead, and then surprisingly some are still alive. Like, oh, okay. how, how are they still alive? And I don't really know how radiation works, obviously. And, yeah, still yeah. don't. Well, probably a lot more confused than that, but, wow. <laughs> yeah. Just seriously. Yeah, I can't recommend that enough. But what else oh. have we watched? I started showing the kids we have our movie night. We started watching Rango, but my daughter was a bit like she's not quite four. And she's like, no, I don't want to watch this. I'm like, fair enough. It's not really for kids. Like, I really like the design of it. So we probably only got 40 minutes into that. Is so that the westerny putting... one? Yeah. Is Johnny Depp's in that? Yeah, it's Chameleon. I think yeah. it's oh, either directed or produced by Guillermo del Toro, and it's got a oh, very, okay. it's got a great visual to it. But yeah, it's um not quite fun, I suppose, for a four-year-old. So we end up showing put on Shrek instead because I thought okay. well, at least that's fun, and that has not dated. Really? The graphics are terrible. Like you get better graphics on a commercial nowadays. Yeah, but yeah, the writing's still fine. Back in the day, it was pretty impressive, though, wasn't it? Yeah, but it hasn't aged well. That's the problem. But, I mean, the kids didn't care, and they were entertained by it, so that's all you want. Exactly. It's funny, because speaking of going back and re-watching things with the kids, my son had a, a sleepover with his grandparents a couple of weeks ago, and he rewatched Neverending Story. And we showed it to him a little while ago, and he was kind of, like, nonplussed by the whole thing. But then apparently the second time he watched it, it sort of hit him a bit more emotionally, and he did actually get upset when the horse died this time, oh, where it's the first time he didn't. He's only human. God well, exactly. Damn it. I can watch it now as a almost 50-year-old, and I still get <laughs> teared up when I watch it. But we were sort of going along those lines and thinking, well, what else is there that he might like that was sort of in that fantasy genre of when we were kids? So we decided to show him Labyrinth. And I've realized that I was never a huge fan of Labyrinth when I was younger, but the the older I've got, the more I can appreciate Labyrinth. But as a little nine-year-old, he loved Labyrinth. I love Labyrinth. It's funny because at the start, he was like asking a lot of questions and we're like, just, you know, just 
chill out. We're not going to tell you anything. Just watch the movie and learn sort of thing. And by the end of it, and we're like, oh, how good were those puppets? And he's sitting there going, what were the puppets? <laughs> so obviously, he just understood that they were gnomes and dwarves characters. and whatever they were. And yeah, characters. He didn't even think of them as puppets. And it's funny, though, because the effects in Labyrinth aren't state of the art by any way, but it just has so much more realism in it because they are puppets rather than being, you know, just bad effects or anything like that. And there's really only that one scene at the end with the owl that kind of lets it down. The rest of it, it just flows really nicely. And the whole Escher staircase bit still comes across as an amazing piece of movie footage. It's yeah. Yep. Oh, cool. And of, of course, my wife has a lot of fondness for David Bowie as the Goblin King and his very tight outfit. But yeah, uh, I think my nine-year-old liked it for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully anyway. Yes. But yeah, other than that, TV-wise, we've been watching a, a new show, a new show for us, but it was made a couple of years ago and it's on Amazon Prime called Carnage, which is a vehicular combat show so it's popped up on my recommended feed the other day it's like is that carmageddon a tv show it kind of is so it's hosted by a couple of english people who i had no idea who they were and cricketer freddie flintoff Mm -hmm. and they just get these groups of like english sort of spanner heads that get together and do up a car and then they fly them over to the South African desert and they drive around these sort of obstacle courses and try and smash into each other's cars and stuff. It is so English. It's not funny because they're just fat yobs from Yorkshire driving around in like an English taxi with metal plates welded to the front of it, stuff like that. But it is really addictive and in typical the way my kids work, after we finished watching it, they were like, can we go and build Lego versions of these cars sort of thing? So they, they got the Lego out Certainly and they started can. putting extra bits of Lego on the front of their fire engine to make it reinforced and stuff. And as I said, that's when I started to get into the idea of Demolition Derby, and that's why we were playing Dirt Showdown. But we've probably watched, I think, six episodes so far. They run for about 45 minutes each. Okay. And they start off with like a couple of cars in the first round and they do like a, an elimination and then they do a bit of a race with these cars and then they take the winners of the previous heats and then they put them in this sort of battle arena. Plus they also have almost like non-player character cars. They have like this big truck that also chases them around and tries to eliminate them and stuff. But it's Robot Wars. It, well, it's Robot Wars with people in vehicles, really. So yeah, I it's I think it's about 2016 it came out, but it's worth a watch. It's it's entertaining, it's lighthearted, and the kids might like it. So yeah, cool. Yeah, and the only other thing I've been really watching is Lego Masters. Which so is, we're up to mm, season two now. Correct. Yeah, and I, and I sort of know one of the contestants on it, so I'm mm. sort of I'm on Team Trent. Okay. They're on a rival podcast, the Toy Power podcast in Adelaide, and we've never actually oh, so, met them in so person, but we do have a friendly rivalry with the geek dudes that I'm on podcast and the Toy Power podcast. We give them a lot of handy little – they're lovely blokes. What? They're the most positive. You give them a lot of handy. Mm. <laughs> um, but so, they are the really positive and lovely, and we on the geek dudes are not. Yes. So they cop our wrath whenever they mispronounce the smallest thing. It's like, oh, did you hear Toy Power this week? Did you hear what they, how they said that? They say Lego for a start. Well, just, I was about to say, out. so then they're not on Lego Masters, they're on Legos Masters. But he, and he said it a few times on the show and they never pulled him up on it. I was oh, disgusted. Really? I was disgusted. Come on, Brick Man, you've got one job. Mm. And have people not say Lego or Legos. Yes. Have you not listened to our Lego episode? <laughs> exactly. You can't pluralise it. 
and it's not Lego. Yeah, we got a friendly rivalry with this podcast. It's a lot of fun, but um, they kept mentioning that Trent wasn't on the show for a while because he was in Melbourne for work, and we sort of had the idea of trying to catch up with him but never actually got around to organising anything and found out later on when he got back that what he was doing over here was filming this show. So, mm. yeah, so it's interesting. So we're actually meant to be going over. We were going over as a podcast to go to Adelaide and sort of hang out and go to a toy fair because it's meant to be a massive one over in Adelaide once a year. And yep. we thought, why not? And obviously there is no travel between borders at the moment, so that no. won't be happening. But Bit of a shame. Hopefully, hopefully in October there's another one, and if things are restrictions are gone by then, then maybe a trip's in order. But they've announced today that like flights to Sydney, they're going to be like $19. Wow. And I was doing something at work today, designing a, a sign for a parking garage in the city. Yep. And it was for three and a, well, for four-hour parking was $63. It's crazy, isn't it? It's like I can fly to Sydney for 19 but to park my car for four hours in a city garage is $63. Yeah, but it cost you more than that at the airport if you were parking than it would to actually fly anyway. Yeah, ridiculous. It would cost you more in an Uber to get to the airport than it would. Yes, to get a coffee. Yeah, <laughs> probably in Melbourne. Mm. Yes, yeah. well, the airport. Airport prices for food, ridiculous. Exactly. Anyways, anyway, really. That's enough of that. But yeah, I, I have been watching a couple of other things. I've been catching up a bit more on Mad Men. We're sort of up to sort of halfway through season four now of Mad Men. And there was one episode in there that was just an absolute perler. There was an episode called The Suitcase. And as far as single episodes of TV series go, it's it's probably right up there with that fly episode of Breaking Bad. It, okay. It's just you can just imagine all of the absurdity that they can cram in one episode. And at the end of it, my wife and I were just sitting there on the couch going, was that just one episode? Did that all just happen in one episode? But it was probably the most comedic episode of Mad Men that they've had so far. Okay. So yeah, I highly recommend that. I think it was episode seven in season four. So that was really good. Uh, We finished season two of Mrs. Maisel on Amazon. Yep. And we're continuing with that. And, other than that, I've been watching a little bit of The Dark Side of the Ring, Season 2. So, so oh, far, yes. I've seen the Chris Benoit episode, which was pretty full on. And then I've also watched the Jimmy Snooker episode and the Brawl for All episode. Brawl for All, I'm interested. I really enjoyed the Brawl for All episode, actually. Because I didn't understand why. Like, The Dark Side of the Ring is very much about the not true crime, but you're sort of the darkest stories that come from the wrestling biz. And Brawl for All just seemed like a fuck-up, not really yeah. a dark side. It didn't seem to go, because the others are all sort of murders or the seedy side of wrestling, where this just yeah. seemed like a badly played-out idea. Yeah, because from what I remember of Brawl for All, it was when UFC was starting to get really popular and that sort of stuff. So it was almost like they were like, well, if they're doing the real fighting and getting a lot of money from it, and we've got a bunch of people that think they're tough guys in uh inverted commas fake world of wrestling maybe we should do something real but yeah there was a lot more to it wasn't there oh, okay but i haven't seen that a, one so i'm looking forward to it well definitely give it a watch and okay it, it's good as well because darren drozdoff was part of the brawl for all and he actually had quite a nasty accident in the ring and he's now a paraplegic and there's a little sort of aside to the end of the episode where they go and talk to Droz again now and just him and, and D'Lo, the guy that he was wrestling, and how they talk about how they've got no ill feeling for the injury. It was just a move that they'd done 
you know, millions of times before each, and then suddenly it just went wrong, and yeah. he ended up as a, a paraplegic. So yeah, it, it's it's good to see that little side bit on the end of the episode. So yeah, but yeah, I really enjoyed the Jimmy Snooker episode as well because I didn't know a lot about the backstory of Jimmy Snooker until probably a couple of years ago when Snooker himself died, and it all sort of came out just before he died when he was like suffering from I think it was pancreatic cancer or something. Mm. And they sort of tried to put him on trial and he was like in no state to actually stand trial for a murder that happened 20 years ago. So, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that story. I mean, it's well known in the biz, but I didn't know it. Yeah. And it's pretty sad and tragic. And it's the wrestling is a shit business, as we say. It's, yeah. I mean, we, we were entertained by it and loved it. It started with carnies and lies, and it hasn't really got far from that. No. It's funny, actually, speaking of the dark side of wrestling, um, I was flicking through news.com the other day just for something to do because I was bored because I didn't really want news. I just wanted entertainment, apparently. But they had a little, like, one of their, like, paid stories that you could go to if you had a subscription, and it was about black widows that kill their husbands and one of the pictures of it was of local Aussie wrestler Dawn Marie. Oh. Uh, and the old Dawn Marie story from the early 80s. Was it 80s, 90s? No. Uh, was, late 90s, you, early 2000s. Yeah. So Dawn Marie was actually a, a Welsh professional wrestler in the Melbourne wrestling scene that hired a young lover to go and kill her husband. Be careful what you say. She's out. Oh, is she? Yeah. Uh, what, was she the Welsh dragon when she wrestled? That's right. Yes. Well, there you go. You better watch out what you say about Welsh people. <laughs> mm. uh, you, you, you got a free pass, don't you? Uh, yeah, yeah. By association. Yes. But before we jump off TV, I will just talk about one other program that I started watching. And that was a little comedy documentary series on Netflix called Absurd Planet, which is a nature program with a bit of a twist. When I first started watching it, it was was M-rated, and I'm like, I can't really understand why this program is M-rated, because it really is just kind of like watching David Attenborough, only with commentary that's a bit more comedic. But then there was one episode where they were talking about birds, and one of the birds they were talking about was a tit. And (laughs) the lines that they went over when they were talking about tits, they're like, all tits are good, but there's one that's actually a great tit, and (laughs) you can't go past great tits. And I thought that that was the episode for me where... And I was like, mm, maybe I shouldn't be watching this in front of the children. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's a little 20 minute show of comedic voiceovers talking about animals. And my kids liked it up until the point where I decided that I probably shouldn't be watching it in front of them. But yeah, I, I got a bit of a chuckle out of that too. So yeah, okay. yeah that's my TV. Movie wise, I haven't really been watching a lot. I'm finally catching up with the rest of the world and I saw Shazam. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Like, I know you probably liked it, but you didn't love it. But it was entertaining. I, I, I liked it enough. Like, it, it was what it was. I, I'm i a massive Shazam fan, for those who don't know. So I just wanted it to be good, and it was. So yeah. I was wrecked. Like, there is no perfect Shazam movie. Yeah. I don't know how you could make a perfect Shazam movie. I don't know what that would be. So I was wrapped with what we got. The only thing complaint if anything would be the casting like i like the performance of billy batson as the kid and i like yep. the performance of the guy playing shazam and zachary levi but they didn't gel as the same person yeah you know it's meant to be the same kid with the same sensibilities and everything just he's in a man's body yeah and i didn't get that the kid was too smart and smarmy and confident where the shazam character was 
more boy-like, if anything. Yep. It just that that was the only issue, if any, and it's minor enough that it didn't affect my enjoyment of the film. Hmm. And the fact that it went a little dark in a few places made it like, so, oh, this is kind of cool. Like it wasn't kiddie, it wasn't anything. It was just a bit of fun. So yeah, I, I was wrapped. Um, I've heard friends said they've showed it to their kids, well, and my their kids, kids loved it. it. Yep. And that's all I want to hear because if the kids love it, that means that it's going to be the character Shazam is going to be in the zeitgeist for years to come, and they're going to remember this character. So we're going to get. If we we might get a sequel, it might peter out, but in five, ten, fifteen years time, there'll be another Shazam something because exactly. they, these kids are going to grow up with fond memories of. Yep, and that's that's all that really matters, and that's what I, I'm just happy about all those things. Yeah, well, as I said, we watched it with our kids, and my youngest had played, I think it's Lego DC three or Lego Batman three DC heroes. That's got Shazam as one of the characters you can unlock. So he kind of knew who Shazam was. Okay. So he did have a bit of a background. So that was good. He enjoyed it. It's funny because Zachary Levi turns up in a couple of episodes of Mrs. Maisel is like this doctor that's trying to be the love interest. And we were watching that sort of the same time we'd watch Shazam. And it was like, Oh, it's that guy. Because mm. I've never watched, was it Chuck that he was in? Yes. So, yeah, so I've, I've never seen Chuck, so I had no idea who he was. So, yeah. Cool. It, it was good enough. Something else we finally got around to watching, and that's the second of the new Jumanji reboots. So, Jumanji, oh, cool. the next level. And it's similar to the fact that when they're different characters, they don't sort of gel properly. And that's one thing I will say about the second Jumanji that a couple of times because they're in different characters than they were in the first Jumanji, it didn't quite feel right. But the fact that Danny DeVito and Danny Glover come in as like these older characters, but then when they come into the game, Danny Glover is in the Kevin Hart character from the first movie, but Kevin Hart does an awesome job of acting like Danny Glover. So he is, he is actually probably the highlight of the movie and Danny DeVito's in the rocks body in the, in the, in the game sort of side of things. And just the Kevin Hart and the rock sort of bouncing off each other as Danny DeVito and Danny Glover kind of works really well. So yeah. Yeah. I look forward to seeing that. And again, my kids loved it. So yeah. So if you're looking for sort of that action adventure type game or type movie, with yep. a bit of humour for every level. The kids got a lot of laughs out of it. There was a few adult references. Like at one stage, one of the characters is actually a horse rather than a person. Hmm. And there's, there's a couple of like very adult jokes about the horse. Okay. So that, that works on a lot of levels. So yeah. Well, I, I caught, I, I didn't end up finishing it, but it was, I've been watching a lot of Viceland lately. There's some yep. really good movies on Viceland at the moment. And it was Saturday afternoon and it was like, oh, Bugsy Malone. Oh, really? Yeah, and I haven't seen that since the 80s. No, I probably haven't seen it since I was a kid. Yeah, so it's Scott Bale, a young Scott Bale, a young Jodie Foster, and it's a gangster film for those who don't know. So it's a 1920s prohibition gangster movie, but with a, it's a musical and an absolute, like, only child cast. They're all children playing gangsters and, you know, mobs, mob bosses and call girls or showgirls and... They get around in pedal-powered Model T forwards and they shoot each other with cream-firing Tommy guns. It was bizarre. It wasn't great, but I was was captivated enough to sort of pique my interest, but I didn't stick to the end. Oh, that's a shame. What's the Jodie Foster's character? Is her name Lousy Brown or something? Oh, could be. It's been so long since I watched it, but yeah. Mm. 
But yeah, that was a curio, that's for sure. But not watching too much else. I'm just thinking about Chernobyl. Yeah, but but I, I, music is something I've been sort of slowly getting back into, which takes us on to tonight's topic or today's topic, whenever you're listening. Well, it does, but, doesn't it? Because there's a lot of stuff on Facebook. The, the positivity that's coming out of COVID, obviously, people are on Facebook or social media a lot, and you've been seeing it, I assume, because you put this topic to us saying that name 10 albums that mean something to you. Yeah, yeah so, so it's been floating around it. Facebook, Twitter. For years, but it seems to be yeah. going around again now. But it's one of those viral things that's going around at the moment where it's like, post a picture of an album cover that influenced you, but don't tell us anything, just post the picture. But some people are taking it a bit differently. Some people are actually saying why it obviously means something to them. But we thought it might be a good idea because we've had a a couple of fans of the show sort of say, you know, you did a couple of musical episodes. Why don't you do more on music? So we thought maybe we should do something like this. But obviously we're going to do it a little bit differently because we are audio. We can't just name an album and don't say anything with it like an album cover so we thought yeah we'd we'd go through a bit of a list we've both got 10 albums each of albums that kind of influenced our style of music or meant something to us meant something to us at the time or continue to mean something to us yep but we changed it up a little purely for the fact that we're going to do it on the podcast and i think we're going to do it a bit more chronological i think so we i I wanted to come up, yeah, what, what, how do you make your list together of 10? So like, well, that, that's what I thought as well. But I thought if, if we do it chronologically, it kind of highlights areas of my life where the music was part of it. And it tells it, a story. This is the one that influenced me first. They've gone on to this one, to this one, to this one. So coming up with 10 is the hardest bit. Oh, definitely. And we're not going to bombard you with music. We're just going to talk about it. Don't worry. And yep. we are going to break it into two parts because... It, the way I talk and go on and on and on, it would have gone on a bit long. So we're going yeah, to exactly. do our first five today. Yep, five each and, tonight. Yeah. And then probably in a couple of weeks when we get back with our next Welcome to Our World, we'll wrap it up with the other five each. Yeah. So do you want to go so, first? Well, I think you should go first because I came up with the idea that we should do it. So I should All let right. you have a bit of a go. My so. first one, it was a cassette. I had it as a cassette. Yeah. And that is 1986 Just for Kicks. Ah, because I thought about doing compilations, but I thought I, that I wouldn't do compilations, I'd do actual albums. No, well, I'm doing this because it is chronological. This is the first one I chose to buy. Okay. So it's important in that way. And musically, it had some good stuff on it. I went back and had a look, so it came out in 1986, obviously. Really? And here is the track listing for it. Queen, Princes of the Universe was track one. ACDC, Who Made Who, Robert Palmer's Hyperactive, Crowded House, Mean to Me, Suzanne Vega's Left of Centre, Paul Kelly's Before Too Long, Boy George, Thank God You Woman. I haven't even heard that song. The Venetians, If Somebody Loves You, The Bangles, Manic Monday, Samantha Fox's Touch Me, Sly Fox, Let's Go All The Way, I'm Talking, Do You Want to Be, Janet Jackson, What Have You Done For Me Lately?, Boys Don't Cry, I Want to Be a Cowboy, OMD, If You Leave, and Billy Ocean's There'll Be Sad Songs, parentheses, that make you cry, close parentheses. <laughs> I, obviously, that was the time I was getting into music to go and seek out a compilation, you know, cassette. And my favourite song of that, like going on now, you know, I like Queen because of that. Prince of the Universe is an absolute corker of a song. It's a great track, one. Yeah, I want to be a cowboy. My boys don't cry. Was my favourite song on it. I still remember the video to that. So maybe that says something about me, doesn't it? <laughs> and I don't know anything more. 
<laughs> then boys I, don't cry. Um, I've got a feeling they were a one-hit wonder. I assume but so. Because I, I, I could be completely more about them, wrong I absolutely but, yeah. love that song. And it's kind of a gimmick song to a point. It's really a gimmick song. It's it's yeah. kind of humorous. But yeah, it, it, that was my favourite. But, you know, I remember like Who Made Who was cool. Yep. That was great. Looking back now, I didn't realise Crowded House was so old. I thought they were a 90s band. I thought Split Ends went longer and Crowded yeah. House started later. But, yeah, 86 Crowded House was a thing. There you um, go. Hmm. Yeah, and Manic Monday by the Bangles. I love the Bangles. I love Michael Steele. The, I think she was the guitar, lead guitar player on that band. She was hot. Was she the blonde um, one? No, the brunette that wasn't the sister. Okay. The sisters, there was Susanna Hoffs, the lead singer. It was Vicky and Debbie Patterson that were the blonde ones. Susanna yep. Hoff was the lead singer, and then Michael Steele was the other one. And I ended up buying that cassette, the Bangles cassette, because I liked Michael so much, and Manic Monday was cool, and Walk Like a Magician was fun. Mm-hmm. And have you ever bought an album and you kept listening, going, I will like this if I listen to it enough? Yes. There was plenty of albums I've done that with. Yeah, I tried, and I just didn't love that album. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. But, you know, Samantha Fox touched me. Now, that was that's an Did important, important song for my yes. childhood. It was right yeah. up there with Sabrina's Boys, as far as, like, quality videos that you would watch on your own. Yes, yes. Um, let's Go All The Way by Sly Fox. That's a kind of funky song. I really dig that. I prefer, the, I prefer the ICP cover of it, but that's just yeah. me. Uh, yeah. Do You Want to Be by I'm Talking? That was a fun song, but it's got a very young, very hot case of brown. I'm in that. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah so uh, it was just a good, solid compilation album, which looking at it today, I'm thinking that's an eclectic mix of different songs. There's, there's hard rock, there's power ballads, there's, you know bit of slower sort of stuff where if you, go, you look at the compilations now. Yeah, they're very genre-specific, aren't they? I mean, I was 13 when I got this, so they're probably aimed at 13-year-olds still. But, yeah, probably. it's you don't get the mix in the charts anymore. Yep. No, the, you don't Different do. types of stuff. But, yeah, so, yeah, that's my number 10 in our hmm. countdown. If it's, a, if it's a chronological thing, so it's, it's not really a countdown, but it's our list. It, a list. It's funny because I, I, we talked about it off air before that I was actually going to have a bit of a, a bet with you and see if I could pick an album that would be in your top 10. Okay. And you wouldn't pick that one. I forgot to mention that. But oh, uh, I, I don't think I could think of an actual album, but as far as a band goes, I would yeah. put a lot of money down to say that Faith No More are going to show up somewhere on this list. Uh, that's pretty safe. All right. So yeah. what about what about me? Do you think there's something in particular that stands out? I think there'll be Brit Pop in there. Could be. And you like your metal. Yes. You like your swamp rock. I don't know. You're all over the place. I am. Hmm. <sighs> all right. But if you have to put your money on one particular band, go out now and say it. Uh, I'm going to say Bloodhound Gang. Hmm. Okay. All right. So for me, I would say Faith No More for you, and you're saying Bloodhound Gang for me. All right. Yeah. So remember that, and we'll, okay. we will see who's the winner when we get to the end of the, uh, right. the top ten. So for me – I'm a little bit older than you, so my music sort of goes back further. And because I come from a, a quite a musical family, I was listening to music very young and I was buying stuff for myself very young. But my first thing on my list is not something that I bought myself. It's actually something that my parents bought. I can't even remember where they bought it. I've got a feeling they may have even bought it on mail order back in the day. And that is the 1978 I guess rock opera, you would call it, and that's Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. I was actually going to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> so 
back when I was young, I would listen to this so much. And I think it's really given me that sort of flair for the theatrical rock because it is, it's a story in four parts almost because we had it on cassette when we were kids rather than on vinyl, but it's four little sides of cassettes and it tells the story of aliens coming to earth Martians more to the point. And it features, uh, it was like Jeff Wayne, I think is the composer. So I'm not sure if he does any of the music on it, but it had Phil Linnett, the lead singer of thin Lizzy doing the vocals for one part. It had David Essex doing the artilleryman. It had Richard Burton doing the like voiceover narration. and narration. Yeah. And for me, when I was a kid, I would just get so enthralled listening to this. And even as an adult now, I can still put it on and listen to it and, <laughs> And think to myself, yeah. <laughs> yes. It, it just blows me away. And the other thing that this album gave me, it wasn't just the fact that it gave me that love of theatrical rock. It gave me the love of the narrative and just the additional bonus stuff you could get with an album. Because the fact that it came with this little booklet that came with it and every song had like a map painting and that told the story of the song. So yeah. And it's something I would still listen to now and I would probably listen to it in its entirety now because as I said, it tells the story. So yeah, 1978's Jeff Wayne, War of the Worlds is my number one. I did buy it. I bought it in the 90s sometime because I knew of it. Because music-wise, I just don't get a chance to listen to music as much anymore. Especially now, ever since podcasts have come into my life, music has taken a backward step because the problem with music is you need to listen a lot, like to an album. Now with things like Spotify or YouTube or anything like that, you want to hear one song, you can hear one song. You just play the one you want. So that love of an album, I used to love listening to albums, but I I had a tape deck in my car for the longest time. I was so late to getting a CD player in my car. So I'd go to the store, buy a CD, and it wasn't until I could get home and put it on the tape that I looked (laughs) in the car. You know, with that that instant where you can go and play it straight away kind of thing. And it was such an exciting thing. But that's gone now with Spotify, so I play it now. I literally talk to my phone saying, open Spotify. Play Taylor Swift. Yeah, exactly. I can do that now, and it just ruins that discovery. Because I found for a while there that there was a lot of CDs where track seven just happened to be my favourite song on each album. Because during the 90s is when I started getting an income and listening to Triple J and getting into new music and started going to goth clubs and that. So I was discovering more and more music and more and more bands. Yeah. Like some of them weren't so much new music, but it was new to me. New to you, exactly. I've got a couple on my list that are like that. Sorry? I've got a couple on my list that are very much like that. Yeah, so that's where I would discover it and you'd listen to it because I had the time to listen to it. I'd sit there and listen to music or put it, you know, make the tape, put it in my car and I'd listen to it while I was going around because you only had the one or two tapes in your car. You didn't really swap them over. So you'd sort of play them to death and you'd learn those extra tracks that weren't singles, but you'd find those tracks that you love more than the actual singles. Yeah, so that doesn't happen as much. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the whole Spotify thing because I think the latest on my list when we get to the end of the the chronological next episode when we do it, I think sort of early 2000s is probably the last full album that I can really recommend being an album that's influenced me. So yeah, definitely relate to that whole Spotify, just listening to the tracks that you like thing now but all right let's go on to your next one on your list otherwise this is going to be a long podcast yeah uh this one we thought we split into two so yes 1980 
is when it came out, and that is the Blues Brothers soundtrack, because this was the first compact disc that I bought. Oh. And, I mean, it's a movie I loved, and I'd watched and taped off the television and watched a lot and a lot and a lot. And, yeah, I bought that as the first CD I bought, and... It's just a corker. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I'm assuming because you watched it on TV, you'd look pretty funny what, eating corn with no teeth. No teeth. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so it's just one. It's my first, yep. and I still dig it. So that's why it's – It's I'm going chronologically, like I said. So that's probably because it was my first CD, and it was a very deliberate choice that I don't regret. Yeah, mm. and you still own it now? Oh, yeah, still own all my CDs. So I, I would like to say I still own my CDs, but before I moved over here to Tassie, I actually got rid of my CD collection because it was too big and gathering dust and it was just sitting in a cupboard doing nothing. Yeah. And the, the fact that we had to pay so much to move interstate over, overseas, basically, to Tasmania, I did actually have to get rid of my CD collection. So, yeah. But I, I can't even remember what my first CD was. It was possibly Best of Blondie. But I, mm-hmm. I didn't think of putting my first CD on the list because, as I said, I was always quite a musical person. Back when I was a kid, other kids were going out and spending their money, pocket money on toys. I was actually going out and buying the number one single of that month or whatever. So I yeah. had a pretty good record collection when I was little. But I was more of a just top 40 listen to pop music for most of my high school times. I think probably the wildest sort of stuff I got into – Later in high school was I used to listen to The Doors a little bit and I got into Alice Cooper. But my next one on my list is actually 1983's Violent Femmes self-titled album Mm -hmm. because for me – it became a huge thing for me in 1989 when I was in year 12 that every party I went to or every time I went out just hanging out with my friends, we would always end up listening to this album. So for me, The Violent Femmes is my year 12 year. It, it, like any time I listen to this album, it just makes me think of 1989. Yeah. And there, there's just corkers of tracks on this. Like obviously Blister in the Sun is probably the song that most people will think of when you say Violent Femmes. But Add It Up's a great song. Kiss Off's a really good song. And I think the other thing that did it for me back in the 90s as well is the fact that my dad hated the Violent Femmes. And <laughs> any time I was feeling rebellious and my dad was pissing me off, I would listen to the Violent Femmes really loudly and he'd come and yell at me and tell me to turn it down. So it was kind of like it was the stepping stone for me to get out of just mainstream pop music and realize there was other stuff out there that was just that little bit alternative. Yeah. And okay. I prob- again, I probably still listen to this album quite a bit now, maybe not in its entirety, but there are still a lot of tracks off this album that have a lot of fun memories for me. Cool. Hmm. All right. Yeah, my next one up my list. Now, I bought this on vinyl back in the day, and this is from 1988, and that is Transvision Vamp's Pop Art. <laughs> I almost went with this as the pick that I would think that you would have on your list. So Really? I probably should have. That's all right. <laughs> well, Faith Then was a very safe bet. Yeah. Yeah. So Transmission Vamp, you know, it had this, the two hits. Well, I Want Your Love is the massive hit from it. Yeah. And the Trash City that I really liked as well. No, I baby, I don't this, care. That was the next, that was on Velveteen. She was hot. It was a great poppy song. It had sort of punk edge to it. So it sort of, I felt, you know, like you, I was listening to pop music too. I, I record off the top eight to date and put my compilation together and try and not get the guy talking over the DJing, you know? It's like, come on, don't talk over the intro or the outro. But, yeah, it changed me around. I just – it had a harder edge to what I was used to at the time. 
you know, a hot lead singer and all this sort of stuff. And again, I like the Bangles album. I've had to force myself to like a few tracks, but I got into it over time. And I did like it a lot. Velveteen was less of an album, which came out not long after. So whether the single didn't make it here till later and the follow-up single came, or the follow-up album Velveteen came really close together, because it was also the first concert I went to without my without an adult or my sister or something like that. I went with a mate. I was 16 at the time, 17. And I think I remember the date, July 4th. Oh, there you go. Independence Day. 89. Yes. <laughs> Last day of my work experience. Yeah, so uh, it was just, yeah, first time at Festival Hall, seeing a concert by myself, you know, without parents. And it was, yeah. It was sort of my my stepping into rebellious sort of music, even though it probably isn't. It felt like it was at the time. It's funny, though, because it actually spawned quite a lot of those like male bands with a female lead singer because there was like the Primitives came out and then the Darling Buds were another one. And they, they all had that sort of blonde, perky lead singer and the rest of them were all like sullen bastards sitting at the back just playing their music sort of thing and I think it became Blondie kind of did that first yeah probably <laughs> but I, i'm thinking i'm thinking more of the pop sort of late 80s early 90s sort of time but yes obviously Blondie did it first yeah yeah mm. all right so the next one on my list and i'm surprised you didn't actually pick this but there you go but for me 1984 the smith's self-titled album i didn't get into this until probably a little bit later it was probably early 90 1990 i was gonna say happy mondays when i was thinking Britpop. i didn't think the smiths yeah but for me i had been listening to morrissey's solo stuff sort of in the late 80s i think his first solo album came out in 1988 and i was a big fan of that and I kind of knew that he had been in a band before he went solo, but I didn't know any of their music. But I can remember in early 1990, I started work for the first time and I was working in Footscray. And back then there was this little sort of indie record shop that was in one of the side streets in Footscray. And I went in there and I noticed they had Smith's vinyl. And I was like, well, you know, I like this Morrissey guy. Maybe I'll buy this album. And for me, I think it changed my life. Like, I don't say that lightly because at that stage, I was early 20s, living at a home in a share house, didn't have a girlfriend. I was pretty depressed, not having the best life. And I just thought that the lyrics that Morrissey was singing were he was singing to me. I just found that I was everything that Morrissey wanted to be at that time, or I wanted to be everything that Morrissey was, either way you want to look at it, except I I probably wasn't a whiny vegetarian git. But (laughs) just the fact that he would sing the most morose topics and Johnny Marr would have the most poppy, jangly guitar, and they would sound like happy songs until you actually listened to the lyrics of what he was saying. They've even got a song on this album that's about the Moors murders in like the 60s in England. But it's kind of like, well, that in particular isn't a very poppy song, but a lot of their other songs are super poppy, but they're singing a very sort of morose, as I said, sort of sort of sound. But this is their debut album. As I said, it came out in 1984. I didn't really get into it until 1990, but it has a couple of their really big songs. It has This Charming Man, which any Smiths fan will sit there and go, yep, that's one of their best. But for me, it's also got a couple of the lesser known songs that are more aggressive sounding. The guitar is like really out there, like um, What Difference Does It Make and Miserable Lie. To me, this was my 20s in a nutshell, and I was just 
from then on, I was a massive Smiths fan and think there was probably periods of my life when I would listen to nothing but the Smiths. Like I was that much of a miserable git myself that I would not listen to anything else. So, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Like I know of the Smiths and know those, the big sit, the big hits yep. and stuff like that. But I never, I was a little bit younger than you. Yeah. And just never got into it. The same mm. way, because I sort of hit the goth clubs that little bit later, and yeah. got into yeah, sorry, but yeah, we'll get to that in, my, in part were, two. The Smiths weren't really goth though. I don't think they were more. They, they were kind of at the the forefront of that whole Manchester scene that sort of spawned like New Order and bands like that. But they they were kind of political without being too political. Mm. But yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't say the the Smiths were goth, but they were more. Yeah, but it was yeah, in that just, scene. Yeah, just sort of sad, miserable, lonely men, what you'd call incels in today's day and age, singing about how it would have been nice to have a girlfriend, but I was too shy and stuff like that. So, yeah. Mm. Okay, now the next one for me is, it was hard. I had to pick an album. Like, it was a band. I liked the band. And it's like, which album? And I don't know if I made the wrong Tomorrow asked me it'll be different. But I'm going to say Midnight Oil. Diesel and Dust from 1987. Now, it was either going to be that or 10 to 1, most likely. Blue Sky Mind's a good album, but with Diesel and Dust has Beds of Burning, Dream World, Dead Heart, Bull Roarer, and Sometimes. They're some corker fucking songs. I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah. But Midnight Oil are fantastic. I've seen them live a few times, mostly at the Tennis Centre. I have seen them at the Sydney My Music Bowl. And they, like, that was, it's a big venue and they play it well. Yeah, but you sort of think they were a pub band. Yeah, they would have been great to see in a smaller venue. Like, because he is a an amazing front man, so much energy. You know, he really uses the space, has a presence that you just can't help but pay attention to. You know, they're political, but they don't. They're not. They're angry, but it's not a whiny sort of angry. Yeah, kind of whiny. And the drummer is Rob Hurst is fantastic on the drums. He's got his corrugated iron like water tank that he uses as his drum solo, and the power of the passion. You know, which is on 10 to 1, which I, was a very tough call. Oh, no, that was Red Sales. But three albums it could have been. It's yeah. like, it was a tough call. I've gone with this one just because it popped in my head first. Yeah, it's just it sort of goes with that live as well. But that was probably my year 12, I think I was listening to that. I think I definitely saw them in year 12. I saw them a couple of times, but that was maybe the first time I saw them. And just, you know, listening to my Walkman walking to school in the morning and listening to Aurora is kind of cool. And just go, do, 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 do. And when you see that live and you've yeah. got 14,000 people going, do, 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 it's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. I, so I must similar say. Similar to that in part two when we get to that bit of sizzle there for yeah. the next one. <laughs> well, I, I must say, I didn't get into Midnight Oil until much later. And then I regretted the fact that I never listened to them back in the day. Yeah. But I, I can remember I went to the M1 concert back in, I think it was 2000 to 2001, maybe, which mm. was like my first music festival that I ever went to that was put on by Triple M yeah. at Colonial Stadium back in the day before it was Marvel or whatever it is now. And trip uh, and Midnight All one of, were one of the headline acts on that. And it got to the point in the show where we'd been there all day. We were both a bit tired, my wife and I, before we were even married then back then. And I was like, oh, do we really have to stick around for Midnight All? And we were both sort of sitting there going, oh, maybe not. But then when they started, even in a massive stadium, they had a presence about them. And you just knew pretty much every song they did. And I was like, hang on a minute. I do like Midnight Earl. And we actually yeah. stayed till the end. And, yeah, I never regretted the fact that we did. So, yeah. No, they, they are amazing. Mm. Okay. So, for my number four song, I'm going to go a little bit cliched here. Yes. 
So it was 1991, and by this stage, I'd actually so it's moved not Guru out. Josh then, because that was no, 1990. No, it's not. I'd already moved out of the share house that I was in, and I was finally living on my own for the very first time in my whole life. I was probably sort of 20, 21 sort of age, living in a shitty bedsit in Brunswick, in a even shittier block of flats with a lot of people that didn't speak English, some person next to me that used to cook the weirdest smelling food all the time. And I was sort of stuck in this funk of listening to the Smiths. And then all of a sudden, something came out that just blew everything away. 1991. Give me a country. They're American. They come from the northwest of America. Seattle. Exactly. And so, like the, like the people cooking next door, did it smell like Team Spirit? It did smell like Team Spirit. So, <laughs> as cliched as it is, I have to say that Nevermind by Nirvana gave me such an influence in my musical tastes, and it was kind of the antidote to the pop that I didn't know I needed. So, when this came out, I was listening to The Smiths, as I said. I'd started going out nightclubbing, so I was just listening to shitty late 80s, early 90s dance music. Then all of a sudden... Bang, Nirvana hit. They went from being well-dressed, presentable people to just ripped jeans, flannies, dirty hair, Doc Martens. And I thought to myself, yeah, this is me. I'm a young 20-something and I should be listening to this. And for me, sure, there are a lot better grunge albums out there. You could probably even doubt that Nirvana, some people say they invented grunge, but I don't think they did. I think they were more the commercial face of grunge, and that's why everyone likes them. But Nevermind to me is still one of my favorite albums of the time. And I can put Nirvana on now, and it just puts me in the same mindset I was 30 years ago as a 20-year-old. Yeah, I will, in part two, get to my grunge era. (laughs) It's not that, just a bit of tease. It's not Nirvana. I didn't think it would be, something tells me, but yeah. yeah. But Nirvana, I remember the first time I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit, it blew me away. I was driving in my car, I was listening to Triple J, and I heard this song. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. And so, like you said, what you said about it was a remedy. For me, this is a song I was looking for. I just didn't know I was looking for it. Exactly. Or the yeah. sound I was looking for. Like, I'm not a lyric person, so I don't know what it's about. But I felt the anger and the angst and the everything. And it was sort of like, yeah, there's something here. This is speaking to me somehow. And I literally listened to the radio for about a week and a half because I wanted to hear it again. Yeah. I didn't know who it was. There was no, you know, Shazam back then. It was just like, what was that? Yeah. i got to hear it. i got to hear it. i got to hear it. And, yeah, so it blew me away in that way. But I didn't buy the album for a while, to be honest. Okay. But I did love that song. Yeah. It, it just, I, like, even before I had the album, it just gives me fond memories of listening to Triple J, listening to Maynard in the mornings, and he would play it, and then – I think Helen and Mikey were on at nighttime and occasionally when they do the requests, people would request this and it'd be like everyone was talking about Nirvana. It was either Smells Like Teen Spirit or it was Lithium. And they were like the two songs that were just all over Triple J at the time. But then when you listen to the album, like Drain You, Come As You Are, Breed, it's just got so many good songs on this album. And yeah, it was just a huge change of mindset for me when this came out. And it it just put me on a different track of music that yeah. I had previously been on. I agree. It's just it's not the album for me. Not the album for you, yeah. No, they would probably be my third favourite Seattle grunge band. Yeah, and, and I can see that there are a couple more that you would definitely put above that. For me, it was always this or the other one that I won't say because I don't want to spoil yours. <laughs> and for me, Nirvana War is one out. Yes. Mm. Mm, yes, and it's just as a warning. Yes, yes. <laughs> I nearly lost you there. All right. 
<laughs> All right, number five. All right, this is the last one for this episode. Now, this is from 1989. It is the soundtrack album to the Australian low-budget anti-nuclear time-traveling musical Sons of Steel. <laughs> yes. I, w- I don't think I could even think of a song that would be on this side, CD. Well, it's, it's, a, it's like I said, it's a low-budget musical. It's rock opera, I suppose you would call it more. It's I remember back in the day when MTV was on Thursday and Friday nights. And it was hosted by Richard Wilkins, and it went for about four or five hours, yep. about 10 o'clock till 2, 3 in the morning or whatever. So it was full of commercials, so you only got so many film clips. It was sort of – it wasn't edgy, but it wasn't bubblegum. You know, they didn't play – it was it was top 40-ish sort of music. I remember one – and I'd watch it because what else was I doing when I was 16 years of age or 17 years of age watching on a Friday night? You, yep. you go to the video library, you get your five videos for five bucks, and when that finishes, you're finished watching one, you watch MTV. So – and they did little stories every now and then. They might expose on a new movie coming out or something. And there was one about this Australian rock opera movie called Sons of Steel. And I looked at it, and they, showed, and they played the film clip from it, and it's like, that looked kind of cool. Nothing came of it. Like, the movie came out to no real fanfare at all. It is... It is what it is. You know, I think I've talked about Sons of Steel in the past. If you want to go back and find it, it, it's something I like. So it came out on video eventually. And I saw it. It's like, that's that movie that I saw the thing on MTV. And I watched it and loved it, even though it is terrible. The acting is terrible, everything. But there was just some sort of charm about it that I liked. I don't know what it was. I recognized it as being bad or whatever. But, you know, the main hero carries an eight ball around with it. And that became sort of a motif for me for a while. So it's very impactful on me that way and um if anything the only song anyone would know was they do a version of something in the air which was made famous by thunderclap newman (laughs) okay yes and yeah i i love this movie so i watched it and that's all well and good and then i ended up buying uh, back in the day they used to be like you know warehouses or you know um showrooms you know furniture stores or something like that might be out of business and then all of a sudden for a two-week period they're selling cds and albums in there on festival tables getting rid of ones cheap and i end up picking up going to these sales and you pick up like two dollar album of something and you never heard of the band before and say oh yeah and and they're worth two dollars sometimes like t-right yes (laughs) that that was a good op shop the only david bowie i own is the tin machine album which i bought in one of these which is kind of cool. Under the God is a great song. But I end up picking it up, and there's a Sons of Steel LP. It's like, LP, Licorice Pie, Long Play, bring it on. So I bought it. It was like two bucks. And then I found the cassette, and I found the CD. So I've got the three. I've got them all, and it costs like two bucks a pop. And I, I love this. And, and I like it for whatever reason. Move forward two, three years down the track. I'm a big comic fan. I, I start going to this comic shop, you know, regularly in Alternate Worlds in Camberwell, and I'm making friends with the manager there at the time, Danny, the top bloke, he's a lot of fun, and this and that, and we're chatting away, we become really good friends. And then one day he makes a comment about something, I make a comment about something, and it's a reference to Sons of Steel. It's like, what? And he looks at me like, what? It's like, you know this movie? It's like, no, this movie, I fucking love this movie. And he goes, me too? <laughs> and that is where we became very good friends on this common bond of this ridiculous film. So, um, yeah, turns out, through Danny, I, I got into science fiction fandom and conventions and those sort of things. And he's got a lot of mates from he's been around this for like 20 years by this point. And one of his friends worked on the movie Sons of Steel. It's like, what? Lewis worked on it? Yes, I'll introduce you. So I end up meeting Lewis and this and that. 
and he told him that I'm a guy who stupidly loves this movie. I have a prop from this movie now. It's a remote controlled giant cockroach. It was a remote control car he made of mold over the top for that. And so I was like, that's kind of cool. So yeah, I, I have a fondness for this soundtrack and this movie. So it all comes together. But the fact that I found it on record cassette and vinyl, I know it so well. And that, yep. uh, that would be my, yeah, that's my number five. Awesome. Mm. All right. So my number five is probably, again, a little bit cliched, not quite as cliched as Nirvana, but 1994 this time. And it was the start of the second wave of Britpop, I think you would call it. And okay. the album that Blur. I picked, the out Park <laughs> by Blur. I was going to say so, Pulp or something. No, no, no. No, well, in my little blurb that I've written here about what I've got to talk about. So at that stage, I was pretty big into grunge. I was pretty big into an alternative sort of music. But all of a sudden, Britpop started to come back. And at that stage, Blur had released a couple of albums They'd been around probably a little bit longer than some of the other Britpop favourites. But yeah, and the album Parklife is way before they even did song two. But obviously the big song of Parklife is Girls and Boys, which when you listen to it now, you think, well, it probably isn't even Britpop. It's almost a disco song. But the song Parklife itself with the spoken world bit and just there's something about this album and – Again, it sort of puts you in that sort of mindset where, yes, it's more of a genre that I was into, but this is the album that kind of started me off. So, as I said, it could have been Blur, it could have been Pulp, it could have been their Different Classes album that had Disco 2000 and Common People. That was around that sort of 1994 time. The second Oasis album definitely maybe also came out in 1994, so I could have gone that way as well. Yeah, Blur kind of started me in that Britpop world that kind of continued for many years to come after that. So it it made me change from wearing my flannel shirt and ripped jeans to starting to wear trainers rather than Doc Martens and ringer t-shirts and tracksuit tops and just going to different sort of clubs. So obviously Monday night, wasn't it? An English night? Was it? there was Thursday nights and then there was like, there was a, a Saturday night place I used to go to called Weekender that was like in a little alleyway off Collins street. And they would play all that sort of Britpop stuff. And for me, again, it's not just about the music. It's about where I was in my life at that time. So by the time 1994 had rolled around, I'd sort of left the house I was living in in Brunswick. I'd moved over to the other side of the city and I was living in Glen Huntley. Initially I was living with my sister for a little while until she got married. And then I sort of had a flatmate move in And it really started to be the stage in my life where I was going out clubbing more. I was just going out and being an early 20s sort of kid and just really enjoying my life. So, yeah. And as I said, it's not necessarily just about the album itself. It's more about the mindset of what Britpop meant to me at the time. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. All righty. Well, that's my five. That's your five. We are very different. Very different. (laughs) But we always knew that. So yeah. I remember a little while ago, probably two, three years ago on the podcast, I made you a CD of music that I thought that you would like. Yeah. And I think out of the 12 tracks that I put on that CD, there was probably one that you liked. No, uh, I think there were three. And there was probably the other 10 where you absolutely hated. And there was yeah, one track a- that you didn't really have a strong opinion about either way. But mm-hmm. yeah, my musical taste and your musical taste, there is a lot of overlaps. But the Venn diagram of what overlaps, when you look at it that way, the the stuff that we both like is quite small compared to the stuff that you listen to and the stuff that I listen to. And that there is that sort of, yeah, Yeah. very different side of each other other here. (laughs) 
So, yes, that, that's our fives. As we said, we are going chronological. I, I seem to be jumping forward a bit quicker than you do. Yeah, that, oh, it got tough when it got to the newer stuff, i got I got to say, with my list. and I'll probably change by next time we record. But no, see, I've already written mine down, so I'm not changing. I've written it down, but it, like I said, it'll change. And it's just because I wanted to sort of pick the moments that sort of change where I discovered a new band or something where things moved along or they're very yeah. important to me. So that they were those first five were that the next five were pretty much the nineties. Like for fair warning, I got into the music into the nineties. That's when I started looking for stuff. Like I said before, yeah. So that's when I found bands. So it's like this one, this one, this one, this one, and then it will be in the next section. There was a CD that I bought, and that's pretty much when my music died. And <laughs> I just stopped really looking for music. Yeah. And and Spotify's made it even worse. And yeah. podcasts have made it even worse. Yeah. So the 90s was really when it all happened as far as me looking and finding and discovering and devouring and immersing myself in a particular album. Yeah. Yeah, so pretty much anything from 2000 onwards, no. I couldn't tell you many. And that's what I was trying to sort of look at. I don't want to put one in for the 2000s just because I can or I should. Yeah. So the next lot is going to be a lot of 90s stuff, I'd say. But there'll probably be a bit of chat into the newest stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, as I said, mine's chronological as well. So as I said, we've got up to 1994 there. I do go as far as 2005 is my later one. But okay. just in that sort of early 90s period, there was probably a couple of honourable mentions that were very close to making the list. And one of those, even back in the day, I would say Queen's Kind of Magic was very close to being on here because for me, when I was oh, in... Oh, where the fuck? Yeah. That should have been on my list. Why didn't I do it? It was on my list. How did that drop off? Yes. Because for me, yeah, that was an that influential was... album, but... That should have been yeah, there was, after Blues Brothers. I, yeah. I don't know what I did there. But no, but that, that that definitely should have been – that would have been there. Take out Transvision Vamp for the Queen. <laughs> ah, See, I, I've for written me, though, three times. It dropped off. For me, though, it was kind of Queen as a, a package for me when I was younger. So it's very hard to sort of pinpoint one Queen album. Well, anything, I don't know if it was – because like that 1986 Just for Kicks had Queen Prince of the Universe on it. Yeah. So I don't know when I got into Queen. I can't remember. And I don't remember my first Queen CD or cassette or whatever I was I bought. I do remember The Miracle was new when I got it, but I'm not sure if I got others before that. Yeah. But The Kind of Magic was the one that I listened to the most. And yeah, I, it's quite, I think that's probably the same for me, mainly for the fact that it was pretty much the soundtrack to Highlander. Yeah. I think it was 86, 87 that Highlander came out and – Queen just sort of were a big thing in my life then. Yeah, so, I mean, I went through bands. Like, when I discovered I like music and I like bands early high school, it was like In Excess was the first band I got into. Then it was Queen. And, yeah, yeah, that should have been in at least. I don't don't believe I dropped that off. But Queen are incredibly influential and incredibly important to me. Yeah. So, well, as um, I said, it's it's hard to just pick a Queen album because, for me, Queen, the band – are more influential than any particular album. So that's probably why I didn't put Queen in there. Uh, another thing that I listened to an awful lot back in the early 90s was probably R.E.M.'s Out of Time. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it influenced me. I just enjoyed it. And it was hard to pinpoint doing this list and instead of doing my 10 favourite albums to narrowing it down to being the 10 albums that influenced me. So that's another reason why that didn't get on there. And yeah. another thing I probably need to put as an honourable mention would be Weezer's Blue album. 
because that came out in the early 90s as well. And at that stage, I was listening to as a grunge probably at the time. And when that came out, it went from being super grungy to being kind of nerdy rock music. Yeah. And I could relate to that as well. But again, probably wasn't a huge influence on me, but I really enjoyed that album too. But yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that's probably a nice place for us to wrap it up. I think so. As I said, we'll, we'll be back in a couple of weeks to do the rest of our lists as a welcome to my world. And it gives you another couple of weeks to go through and rewrite your list if you want to. But as I said, I've written mine down and I've got the piece of paper here and I'm not going to change anything. Yep. So, yes. But so far, so good. Uh, I think you've got a couple of really good tracks in there. Mm-hmm. There's probably some stuff that I need to go and dig up and listen to just to see if it was as good as you think it is. Not that I'm saying this is a bad thing, but I really want to hear this Sons of, Sons of Steel soundtrack to see oh, nice. what uh, it was. <laughs> <laughs> really? It's, 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 it was of its time. It's, it's, okay. my, it's not great. I don't know. Um, it's really hard to describe. It's not it's not the best. It's 80s cock rock in a way, but not even in the good way. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it probably isn't even on Spotify, is it? I doubt it very much, Lee. I might find it on YouTube. But anyway, <laughs> all righty. Well, if you have any ideas what, what you think of what we've said as far as these albums go, if you agree with us, if you don't agree with us, if you think we're totally idiots, drop us a line. We are the MA Podcast on Twitter. We are on Facebook as facebook.com slash the Massive Attack Podcast. And you can find us on our website, which is the Massive Attack Podcast.podbean.com is our website. So, yeah. Until then, thank you very much, Mitch. It's been great catching up with you again. No worries. Stay and safe, we'll, people. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Are you alone?